0: All right, the announcement that we have tonight is has to do with this dinner on Sunday night at Kenny and Ziggy's. So this is, uh, we've got about 30 people on the list right now, and the dinner will be served at a buffet style. Well, what I did, I went down and talked to Ziggy, and we're going to do a what they call a a hot deli station, which is going to have hot pastrami, hot corned beef, and they're going to have a slicer there to make sandwiches and various other things. And then there's going to be some various cold cuts, all of that together. Don't get sticker shock. Meat prices have gone up. And Kenny and Ziggy's has the best corned beef in town because he makes it, and it's prime beef. So it's not $2 a pound. Okay, they're not $4 sandwiches. Uh, okay, and there's going to be a um, salad, Greek, uh, Greek salad. There's going to be uh, several other things there, including uh, some cheesecake for dessert. And so the price comes to $41.68 a person, and that includes tax and gratuity. That email went out today. And so get there about 6.15 and people can go through the line, get your food and everything. And once everybody sits down and we pray, begin eating, then Mitch can start talking. And then when he uh, finishes, then he'll be able to eat. So that's, that's the plan for, um, uh, for, uh, Sunday night. Now it's a new location. So if you haven't heard that and you don't know they've moved, they've moved. It's just, uh, almost down to where, to San Philippi and uh, Post Oak. So they're n- north of where they used to be, down by the Galleria. Now they're up there where um, uh, I think it's the arrangement is, and then there's a, a Western store in there. What's the name of that Western store? Anybody know? It used to be in Luby's. There used to be a Luby's back in that corner, and they've taken over that space. So anyway... You can the it, go- in the email is correct. Yes, the address in the email is correct, and Google has the correct address. Okay? They will get you there. All right. So, any other questions you can ask me later? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we open up God's word this evening and begin our, uh, int- continue our introduction to Gideon as the reluctant deliverer, uh, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are ready to study, prepared to study, and walking by the Spirit, and if necessary, confess sin. So after a few moments, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Uh, Father, it's a great pleasure to be together this evening, just to be refreshed by your word, to think through issues that are presented in your word that enable us to think, to think clearly about what's going on around us, to uh, critically evaluate what we hear in the news, what we see and witness as the cultural trends around us, uh, to be able to think more accurately about the reality that exists around us, as well as how to pray and how to... Uh, build our prayers on the realities of your intervention in history. So, Father, we pray that as we study these things tonight, it will uh, help us and challenge us and focus us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And whoever just turned the air on, thank you. It is warm in here. So I'm dripping. Pastor's the only one who's allowed to change things. (laughs) It can be really cold in here, and I get complaints. But if I'm hot, nobody's going to be happy. Okay, open your Bibles to Judges 6. Never mind. Open your Bibles to Psalm 83. Psalm 83. We're going to continue there. But tonight we're just continuing the part of the introduction, looking at the significance of this battle, uh, the calling of Gideon to be a judge, and the battle against the Midianites, and how it is used in the Old Testament in subsequent revelation, and what comes out of that as we as we study these things and part of what we 're looking at I ended on just as an introduction to this last time is on the significance of history, and again and again, history and its significance is central to arguments that are used by prophets in the Old Testament, by those who wrote the Psalms, by apostles in the New Testament, as they lay out a case in prayer as to why God should intervene in their lives and historically in the life of the nation or in the church or in an individual because of what God has done. He set the precedent already, made promises And so that is what strengthens these uh, prayers. Judges is all about moral relativism, how a culture goes into a tailspin, uh, moving from spiritual uh, victory and spiritual conquest to paganism, where where the Israelites just looked worse than the culture around them. And that's amazing because we see that mirrored in our culture, in Western civilization and in the United States of America, and so it t- teaches us a lot of things that should be part of our of our thinking, and so we've looked at that. We've seen this cycle of the judges that started with a disobedience uh, to God, and that led to divine discipline. God's discipline then led to their in a few cases, turning to God, but often they just cried out and God answered them and in His grace He delivered them, not because they were straightening up, not because they were uh, turning back to Him, but simply because out of His grace and uh, compassion for them, He delivered them from their oppressor. But the cycle just continues and that just brought the nation down, uh, you have it sliding down through the, each successive judgeship becomes worse. The first three, there are some various positive things said about them, and I don't know why that shifted to the next slide there, but various positive things are said about them. But the last three, uh, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson uh, really have major, uh, major problems. So we go into the Gideon cycle. Basically, I pointed this out last time. The first part is the deliverance from the Midianite oppression. And this is covered in three chapters, chapters 6, 7, and 8. And so you can see that the majority of these verses, 94 verses, cover the deliverance. That tells us the emphasis is on the grace of God. Now, here's a point of observation. How many times do you hear preachers and evangelists and tele-evangelists make such an issue in their sermons and in their messages that it's about 95% reaming people out because of their sin and about 3% on grace, and the rest is about raising money? That seems to be pretty standard. But the emphasis that we see through these these episodes is on God's grace, God's deliverance. He certainly provides discipline for the nation, but it is um, it, it, he's gracious, he's kind, and he co- uh, delivers them in many ways. And then we see this episode with uh, Abimelech, who is Gideon's son, <clears throat> and that episode with Shechem in, in chapter nine. So we turn then to. Uh, judges, I mean, excuse me, Psalm 83, and Psalm 83, and Psalm 83 is. I've chosen that because it talks about um, this battle among other battles, but it is a prayer, and it is a prayer of Asaph, and he's turning to God for help. Technically, it's called a lament psalm. A lament is a cry to God for help that God will intervene, that I'm under some kind of pressure, I'm under some kind of adversity, I've got, Uh, maybe it's a health problem, financial problems, maybe it's a problem with the nation, uh, the hostility, the the emphasis on enemies of God, enemies of the truth that have risen to positions of power, and the, th- the laws and the regulations that are being passed are harmful to children, they're destructive of marriage. Basically what we see both in the times of the judges and in times today is a full-bore assault on the divine institutions. And we have seen this going on. It's gotten progressively worse since the 60s, attacks on personal responsibility. And you can trace those attacks back to a number of things that came together in the mid-19th century. And you start seeing as we shift to a welfare state, whether then people being responsible for the bad consequences from their bad decisions, the government becomes responsible and takes care of them. Now, that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be some sort of safety net, but the safety net should be with qualifications and that whatever the government provides, that it is done on on condition. You can put people to work in a lot of different ways, and part of that was part of the uh, so-called contract with America that the Republican House, or those who are running for the Republican House, I think it was back in ninety um, <clears throat> ninety four, and it had a it had a huge huge impact, and it it really revolutionized. Uh, welfare in many cases. Now, the whole welfare system, the entitlement system, is all an attack on the uh, first divine institution. And then you have, of course, the attacks on divine institution number two, which is marriage, and that has come under a tremendous attack in numerous ways in our culture with the rise of the whole uh, LGBTQ++ whatever uh, transgender, all of this is just uh, just hostility towards god 's plan and purpose, all built of course on <clears throat> a rejection of God, and it is all seemingly wrapped up in scientific uh, justification and it always reminds me I think it 's uh, Romans one twenty one or twenty three that says uh, professing to be wise, they became fools. And we're we're in massive self-destruction. Uh, it destroys marriage. It destroys the family. Uh, we've seen so many things there, and it, it, isn't it appalling to watch how school boards are uh, at war with parents over the curriculum in schools? And there is no reason for this. And all of these school board members are, are many of them are guilty of child abuse. Those who are. Promoting either through uh, library books, they go into children 's libraries, promoting the uh, all this uh, sexual identity confusion, those who are allowing uh, the nurses to treat the children apart from parental uh, parental permission. Uh, this is all a violation of the principles of God, wo- God's word. It's a violation of what makes a healthy society. And I, I agree with, uh, I, I thank God we have a governor and an attorney general in this state who are willing to come out and say that, that all of this, this, uh, uh, uh puberty blocking, all of this, uh, medical and surgical uh, stuff that is being done to minors is nothing more than child abuse. And frankly, I think that all of the politicians that are promoting uh, this kind of legislation to allow this should be brought up on charges of child abuse. It is an attack on the, the future generation of our nation, and that to me borders on treason. And we just are too passive in the way we go along with all of these things and Christians don't speak up in truth when it comes to policies that are put forth by their employers and so they would rather get their paycheck and their retirement than to stand up for the truth and it's happening again and again there was a wonderful article that came out I think it originated with, folk, with a focus on the family maybe not it was published in a different publication Charlie Clough revised it uh, so that it could be used in a as a bulletin insert. But then um, I, I checked with him. I said, well, did you get their permission to do that? And so he could not get their permission. So he's just going to rewrite it. But th- that was the whole point is that we have too many Christians who when HR invokes certain policies for some corporation that the Christians don't stand up and fight it because they don't want to lose their job, they don't want to lose their paycheck, their their pension, or whatever. And that's just moral and spiritual cowardice and has led to giving permission uh, tacitly to all of these things that are going on. And this has been going on. I remember when I was pastoring in Irving in the mid-'80s, I had a man in my church, who was going through chiropractic school, and they were basically being indoctrinated with a lot of New Age mysticism, and he stood up against it and was kicked out of the school. But he did the right thing. Just because there are bad consequences to doing the right thing doesn't justify not doing the right thing. And uh, we've allowed these things to go on for uh, way too long. And so what we see in Psalm 83 is Asaph... Who is one of the musicians in the temple, and he is writing this as a it 's not just an individual lament it is a national lament, and the situation is very similar to what we find in judges six in fact he 's going to go back to Judges Six in order to uh, argue that God intervened in the history at that time now asaph is overlaps with David and Solomon. So we're not sure exactly what the circumstances were, uh, that brought rise to this, but it was in that <clears throat> general time period when things were somewhat better spiritually. It's not like he's coming along during the time of Manasseh and uh, when everything is apostate and absolutely, absolutely horrific. And so he sees this national, uh, calamity And he understands that even though it has economic dimensions, even though it has political dimensions, even though it has military dimensions, the root problem is always spiritual. And unless we do something about the spiritual problem, there's a reversal there, then all we end up with is a lot of window dressing. Now, sometimes window dressing is the best you can get, and we ought to be thankful for it but the real solution has to be a change in the way people think and that means we have to regain control of what of education and and if we can't regain education then parents have to recognize what is going on in the schools but this is a time for parents to be about 10 times more involved in in if their kids are in public education and i don't know you know education's a mixed bag it's different in from school to school in some places and it's different in state to state you can't just make these sweeping generalizations about all uh, public school is is bad because it it's not there are many places where you have uh, believers in the classroom you have believers in school and they know what's going on and they're not going along with whatever the state policy may be so but parents nothing justifies parents not being involved in what the, their kids are being taught <clears throat> taught in school so in this opening part uh, asaph just cries out to god he says don't keep silent and you see, this is—it's an imperative, but it's an imperative of request. And he's calling upon God to intervene. Don't just sit back and and permissively allow this, but get involved. Uh, the New King James translates it, "Don't hold your peace," and um, uh, ESV translates it, "Don't be deaf, God. Uh, don't be idle." And so he's calling upon God basically to intervene in the circumstances. And then uh, he, in verse two, he points out what the problem is. And this is explained in two and three. He says, "Your enemies uh, make a turmoil, an uproar. Uh, those who hate you have lifted up their head." In other words, they're they're acting arrogantly. They are proud. And so he recognizes the principle that's written in later Scripture that God uh, God hates the arrogant and he takes care of the humble. And so he recognizes that, that principle and he, re- he portrays those who are, are his enemies, the enemies of God, as those who are uh, arrogant, that are lifting up their head and they are uh, entering into various... Um, uh, conspiracies. They consult together against your sheltered ones, and the term "sheltered ones" is a term that refers to to believers. Now, what we see here that's interesting is that the structure here is a structure of of, um, of a chiasm. Now, uh, this is how uh, Alan Ross. Uh, structures this chiasm in his commentary, and you have uh, in a chiasm the w- the way it's structured each in each main point is indented, and if you were to draw a line from a through c and then back from c prime b prime to a prime, it would form the left side of an x, which is the Greek letter key as we pronounce it uh, today, not chi, which is how you learned how to pronounce it if you were in some sort of uh, fraternity. So it is the letter key, and it really should be pronounced more like a chiasm, as I've, as I've heard people do this. But what this tells us is that the centerpiece it's where the emphasis is. It's just like a, you may have a painting with an absolutely beautiful frame, and you don't want to take anything away from the beautiful frame, but the frame is there to help draw your attention to the center of the painting. The painting is what's at issue. The, the, uh, the, the frame should not overshadow uh, the painting. So what we have here is the A's and the B's are framing the centerpiece, which is uh, explained in verses 5 down through 12. And so in in verses 5 to 8, it talks about the greatness of the opposition. This was the historical opposition. So this brings in what I was closing with last time is the emphasis on history. And then C prime gives examples of the great acts of God in Israel's history. So in verses 5 through 8 we read, For they have consulted together, that is these enemies of Israel, they've consulted together with one consent, they form a confederacy against you. Now he's not thinking in terms of at one time, because these nations did not necessarily exist at the same time. But together, historically, they were all involved in a conspiracy to destroy God's plan for Israel, to destroy Israel, to destroy the house of David, to prevent. It was all backed by a satanic conspiracy to prevent the coming of the messianic uh, king. And there are ten nations that are mentioned here. There's the Edomites, who are the descendants of of, uh, Esau and the Ishmaelites, who are the descendants of Ishmael. And the Ishmaelites are often closely associated with the Midianites, who are the enemies in uh, Judges chapter 6. And then you have Moab and the Hagrites. Uh, And I'm not sure about the Hagrites or Gebel, but Ammon uh, is a descendant of Lot. These are over in the area of, of uh of Jordan now, and Amalek, who was eventually defeated by Israel. But they have become a sort of a proverbial term for anyone who is an enemy of Israel because it was Agag, the Amalekite, who was in opposition to Saul. And then much later on, when you get into the time of of Esther, uh, that it is, um, oh, what's his name? That is the, the enemy, the one who sought to destroy all of the Jews, that he is called a, um, an Amalekite, a, a descendant of Amalek. And this is, this is, uh, so this is a picture of those who are constantly against Israel, the Ph- Philistines and the Phoenicians. You have the Philistines on the south of uh, Israel along the Mediterranean coast, and on the north, uh, northwest you have, uh, <clears throat> you have the uh, inhabitants of Tyre. We talked about Tyre last Thursday night and the ultimate destruction of Tyre in fulfillment of those prophecies in, in Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel. Uh, Assyria, who came along later, also has joined with them, and they've helped the children of Lot, Moab and Ammon so this is an indictment against those nations and that's all historical we have to know history to in order and the history of the bible in order to craft a prayer of like this and and that's an important thing because what he's doing here is he's talking about how these nations historically have been coming against israel <clears throat> and then in the next part He'll describe the great acts of God in Israel's history in verses 9 to 12. And see, he uses this when he is presenting his petition, uh, when he is presenting his petition to to God. He says, first of all, deal with them as with Midian. That's the first example. Well, if you read this, you don't know who Midian is, or when God dealt with them as Midian, then you can't understand the significance of this petition. And what this is, is it's called an imprecatory psalm. And there are some people who have real problems with imprecatory psalms. I've never understood that. They're inspired by God, and they're part of uh, inerrant scripture that's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction, uh, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And so we're to learn from this. We can use these kinds of imprecatory prayers, oh, against Putin, for example, against the Russians, right now that that god and I do this every day I pray that god would raise up an ehud who would uh, assassinate putin and in this in this war but god obviously wants it to continue for various reasons and there's nothing wrong with a prayer like that um that's what what we need uh so that what happened with the midianites the midianites were completely destroyed by gideon never mentioned again as a force against Israel and so they were they were completely uh, neutralized by, by Gideon and then what's the second example as with Sisera as with Jabin at the brook Kishon that's judges chapter 4 and judges chapter 5 which we went through uh, in detail with the during the judgeship of Deborah and the generalship of of Barak That uh and they perished it indoor, that is where remember when Yael nailed Sisera to the floor of the tent, and uh he became as refuse on the earth, manure on the manure pile. Uh, Make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb, who are they? Oreb and Zeev are these Midianite princes, and Zeba and Zalmunna, or Oreb and Zeb are the generals, Zeba and Zalmunna are the princes of the Midianites. They're the ones that are neutralized by Gideon. So he, both in verse 9 and verse 11, he comes back to the episode that we're going to study in Judges uh, 6, 6 through 8. And they are characterized by this arrogant statement in verse 12 who said, Let us take for ourselves the pastures of God for a possession. Now, what's important about that verse? What's he getting at there? Well, what he is getting at there is that the possession is God's possession, his inheritance that he has given to Israel. They are the pastures of God. This is a genitive of ownership. God owns the land of Israel, and he has given it as an inheritance to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so these enemies want to, uh, this is part of the satanic attempt to destroy Israel, to prevent the Messiah from coming. And so they want to take the land that God has given them and it's it 's interesting that if you take a look at the first uh, part of Judges Chapter Six, you have the word "land" uh, mentioned uh, several times, emphasizing that it 's the land that was the land promise that was the uh, other covenant, but God promised to Abraham land, seed and blessing. Genesis chapter 12, verse seven, I will give this land to you and your posterity forever. It's the land. And so that is the focal point there at the very beginning uh, of judges, judges chapter six. And this is part of the uh, satanic attack uh, in order to take Israel out of the picture. Now in verses, uh, 13 to 17, we'll come back to this. This is where he's telling, uh, uh, he is uh, praying to God, petitioning to God to completely destroy these enemies that they are facing at his time. And there's nothing wrong with this kind of a prayer. C.S. Lewis, just bless his heart, typical English theologian. English theologians don't believe in inerrancy of Scripture, Uh, Very, very few of them have historically. And C.S. Lewis thought that all the imprecatory psalms were inspired by the devil and not by God. (laughs) Just one of his little idiosyncrasies. A lot of people have had problem with that. So what you see here is that, that in this prayer, it's built on a rigorous historical, logical argument presented to God as to why he should intervene in the history of Israel in the way that the the one who is praying should pray. And that tells us that we have to understand history. And I don't know how many times, probably most of you have thought this, uh, certainly inspired me when I was in high school. I loved listening to anyone teaching the Scripture and going into history because I loved hearing about it. And it gave me a real desire to know history because those who don't know history are bound to repeat the mistakes of history. And we see that right now. I can't tell you how many times when after we got back from Ukraine that I would make comparisons to uh, the beginning of World War I and the beginning of World War Two, and that it was very important that if the uh, certain moves had taken place with, uh, uh, with the leadership to stop it at the very beginning instead of waiting and saying, oh, it will work itself out, let's negotiate, 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 uh, then you have a problem. You have a problem like when uh, Hitler moved into Czechoslovakia. Neville Chamberlain came over there uh, famously and negotiated with Hitler, came back and waived a treaty and said, we'll have peace in our time. That lasted about a year. Uh, we can't let that kind of a thing happen, but you have to have a Churchill who will stop it. Zelensky is often compared to that, but we need that kind of leadership in NATO, we need that kind of leadership in Washington D.C. that will be strong enough to stop it at the beginning, and not be motivated by fear, and at least get all the weapons that we have sent across the border. I've been talking a lot with a security guy because we've been trying to help with some things, and he was the head of the security we had here several years ago when we had Sharam Hadian speak. And he's prior military, works with a guy who's prior CIA and some various other backgrounds. And they've been into Ukraine. They debriefed me right before, right after we got back. And then I didn't have much to tell them because when we crossed the border, it was pitch black and we didn't see anything. I had no idea what the border looked like. But he's been over there. He's gotten Americans out. He's getting ready to go back over there. He's done various things and he he said, "The biggest problem is that the American equipment that we 're told is getting in is not getting in and I finally heard a general say that this morning a retired general on Fox News say that this morning no it 's not getting in the and i don 't know why it 's not getting in other than it's one of the things i 'm told is is we have too many alphabet agencies that don 't work well together, and so it you know they all have to sign off and cooperate." There are regulations about things such as uh, uh, thermal thermal imaging equipment, and the regulations are so vague nobody knows whether they're allowed to give it to Ukraine or not. Uh, those are just some of the problems that that they're facing, and so you know they're trying to get over there and break break down this 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 logjam. So we need leaders who are tough mentally. Can make good decisions and can stop this, but I'm afraid we don't, and so we're in for the same kind of thing—a five-year war, World War One, a five-year war in World War Two, and who knows? Things move faster now, so who knows what 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 will happen? But we have to know history, and we live in a world where history has been attacked and rewritten again and again in the classroom. And so we have generations that are coming up that are either, A, at best, they're historically ignorant, at B, they have been taught a completely false view of history. And uh, as I pointed out, that's like Moses and later Jeroboam I built the golden calves and said, this is the God who took you out of of, uh, Egypt. It's historical revisionism, and we have to fight against that uh, left and right. But one of the problems that we have is we have these groups like uh, Antifa and Black Lives Matter who are all, uh, which are all products of a Marxist worldview. And their whole, one of the things that has happened historically when Marxism comes over and takes over a country is to wipe out their understanding of history. Uh, wipe out the the traditions, destroy the reputation uh, uh, of the, the uh, founding fathers. And um, what we have to recognize is that all leaders have flaws because all leaders are sinners. There's no perfect leader. Uh, every leader that we've ever had that has done really wonderful, great things is a flawed sinner. Every pastor you've ever had Uh, No matter how good his understanding of theology and his teaching is a flawed sinner. Everybody is a flawed sinner. We all need forgiveness and we all have problems. And so you have these uh, idealistic, because that's what Marxism is. It's a form of idealism that comes along based on the idea that we can actually improve man because man is basically good and that we can bring in a A whole new society uh, loaded up with uh with with social justice, scripture is very clear that everyone is a sinner. You have romans three uh, ten as it is written, these are all quotes from uh, psalms, There is none righteous, no not one there's none who understands there's none who seeks after God. they have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is no one who does good, no, not one. Now, these basic statements are all related to a description of the culture at the time of the psalm was written. The conclusion Paul has in 323 is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, as I was thinking about that and the importance of understanding. Biblical truth, just to give that window of of, uh, of truth that gives us the ability to to, to interpret what 's going on around us, I was reminded of one of my uh, favorite books, one that is quite quite significant is a book by Thomas Sowell called Conflict of visions i 've mentioned it uh, many times. And last week, I had written down a number of things, which I'll still go into because they're a little bit different. But as I was uh, looking around at some things, I realized that if you don't get it, you ought to go to their website and sign up for it. Hillsdale College has a uh, monthly publication called Imprimus and it always includes a speech or something written by someone that is dealing with an important current event. And the March 2022 issue, which probably came to my house sometime in February when I was uh, crawling across the Ukrainian wheat fields to get out of the – across the border and um, at a speed of about five miles an hour with probably – you know, hundred thousand of my closest uh, refugee friends, and um, so I missed it somehow. But I picked, I got it on online, and Jason Riley just recently wrote a a bi- biography of Thomas Sowell. So he writes in this article, Sowell says his the favorite of his own books. He's written quite a few excellent books. His favorite book is a conflict of visions in which he tries to explain what drives our ideological disputes about freedom, equality, and justice. He traces these divergent divergent visions or views of human nature back at least two centuries to thinkers like William Godwin, Immanuel Kant, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau down through John Rawls and today's social justice advocates. So the reason you study 18th century philosophers and their writings is so you can understand what's going on today. It's not just something that old white men were arguing about. Those issues are as relevant today because that's the roots of where this came from. He says the conflicting visions he describes in the book are the constrained or tragic view of human nature. We would call that the biblical view of total depravity. But Thomas Sowell used the word constrained. What limits us? It's sin. It's that we're basically evil. Uh, He doesn't make it quite that stark, but that's what Scripture says. And then the opposite is the unconstrained or utopian view. Now the unconstrained or utopian view is the view of progressives, whether they're progressive conservatives or progressive liberals. If you're a progressive, you're on that side of the aisle. You don't see man as basically evil and sinful. You see man as basically good and perfectible. And that's the great dividing line. And after that, you just have to decide how consistent you're going to be with that with that foundation. And so um Uh, Riley goes on to say uh, uh, the uh, people with a more constrained view of the human condition see mankind as hopelessly flawed. They see inherent limits to human betterment. We might want to end war or poverty or racism, they say, but that's probably not going to happen. Therefore, our focus should be on putting in place institutions and processes that help society deal with the problems we're never going to eradicate. That's biblical realism. On the other side, he says, "...you have the unconstrained or utopian view of human nature, what I would call progressivism, which rejects the idea that there are limits to what humans can achieve. This is the belief that nothing is unattainable, including perfection. Nothing is unattainable, and no trade-offs are necessary." Isn't that interesting? No trade-offs are necessary. That means the progressive side refuses to compromise. That's an important observation. That's what you see so often in Congress. According to this perspective, by utilizing the proper amount of reason and willpower we can not only manage problems like war poverty and racism but solve them entirely that's the progressive view you can do it that's the un with their with their idolatrous uh, use of isaiah that we ha- they have a statue out front and emblazoned on it is that we will uh, beat our uh, swords into plowshares, and our spears into pruning hooks, and man will learn war no more. They have absorbed to themselves a messianic identity. And that's just pure progressivism. In fact, it's idolatry. So he goes on to say, depending on which view they embrace, Soul explains why two people, similarly well-informed and similarly well-meaning, will reach opposite conclusions on a whole range of issues, including taxes, rent control, school choice, military spending, and judicial activism. When Kant said that from the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made, he was exhibiting the constrained view. That doesn't mean he was a believer, but at least he understood man was basically not good. When Rousseau said that, quote, man is born free, but everywhere is in chains, he was voicing the unconstrained view. See, man is born free. There's nothing constraining him in his basic nature. Now, all of this fits under the biblical category of theology called anthropology. Who is mankind? Uh, Anthropos, human beings. What are we? Who are we? How are we to be understood? Um, He goes on to say, when Oliver Wendell Holmes, now if you don't know who Holmes was, he was a significant judge in the 1880s to the early 20th century who was um, uh, instrumental in changing the orientation of the court. But he made a, uh, he did hold to a constrained view. He said his job as a judge was to make sure the game is played according to the rules. Whether he liked them or not, it was a constrained view. When Earl Warren, the Warren court, court back in the 50s, early 60s, I think, said his job as a judge was to do what he thinks is right regardless of the law, that's actually the antinomian view, that I don't like the law, so I'm going to change it. It's active, uh, judicial activism. Um, so he, it was. Uh, Riley says that's an unconstrained view. This is the philosophical framework that explains Sowell's writings on almost any topic. So, when you look at Sowell, what he does is he explains that there are many types of visions. Now, I would relate his concept of vision to a world view, and the two aren't exactly synonymous but they're uh, but they 're very similar uh, they uh, uh, These visions can be grouped together on the basis of certain similarities. so you have a vision that is basic. I would say you have two visions, a pagan vision and a, one that's influenced by a, uh, a Judeo-Christian wor- worldview. And if I were pushed to the wall, I'd probably say a vision is the product of your, of your worldview. So a vision is a way people look at life. Vision is how you look at things, at all of the issues of life. And thus these visions really do grow out of a person's worldview in a lot of ways. So one of the elements in a vision has to do with the nature of human beings and how that is understood. Now in in his book, Sowell looks at two important works from the late seventeenth I mean eighteenth century. He compares and contrasts them. That's how you often learn uh, uh, truth from error is by comparing and contrasting different different views, and he sa- he takes William Godwin's work, Inquiry Concerning Political Justice, and then on the other hand, the Federalist Papers, uh, which was written in 1788. Godwin's book, written in 1793, uh, you know, Sowell makes the interesting comment. He said if you were to read, if somebody were to come from Mars, and read Godwin. And then some, and 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 they would have one whole view of what society on the earth was like. And then if they read, uh, if they read the Federalist Papers, they they would be totally confused. They're they're so, they're absolutely different. There's no compromise. There's no middle ground. These are radically opposed views. You either look at things. Uh, ultimately, for our, from our vantage point, you either look at things the way God looks at them or you're looking at the way the rebellious creature looks at them, whether you're talking about Satan, whether you're talking about human beings. It's all grounded on arrogance and a rejection of God's truth, professing to be wise. They became fools. So here's a quote from Sowell, the capacities and limitations of man. I'm gonna, what I am going to do is read the whole quote, then we'll talk about a couple of things he, he says. The capacities and limitations of man are implicitly seen in radically different terms by those whose explicit philosophical, political, or social theories are built on different visions. Man's moral and mental natures are seen so differently that their respective concepts of knowledge and of institutions necessarily differ as well. Social causation itself is conceived differently, both as to mechanics, that's how it works, and results. Time and its ancillary phenomena. What does that mean? History. Time and that which goes along with time, and then he has a, an M-dash for an, a, a, um, an appositional explanation. Traditions, contracts, economic speculation, for example are also viewed quite differently in theories based on different visions. You see, visions include all the important issues of life, and it's either one way or the other way, and what Soul is saying, it all depends on whether you think man is basically, basically perfectible or not. That's the bottom line, which I think is just absolutely brilliant and biblical. So what does he say? First of all, he says that the capacities, that is the potential, and the limitations of man are viewed in completely, totally unreconcilable ways uh, by these two different visions. They're so radically different, you can't find a middle ground of compromise. Second thing he says is that the, the two visions will see man's moral nature and his mental nature uh, in radically different ways. Third thing, he says, is the result. The result is that the concepts of knowledge and of institutions differ. So the very concept of intellectual acquisition of knowledge is going to differ from one vision to the other. They have different views, and thus they have different views of institutions such as education. So the person who has a progressive view is going to have an unreconcilable view of education from those who have a constrained view or a view that man is basically sinful. See, ideas are important. Ideas have consequences, and when your ideas aren't biblical, they have really bad consequences. Now, I know Sol, Sol's a believer. He's a conservative Christian, and that informs a lot of his ideas. That's where they ultimately, ultimately come from. Fourth, he says that social causation is conceived differently. I mean, the forces of society, what produces poverty? What gets people out of poverty? Uh, what about social justice, which uh, Godwin referred to as political justice back in the late 1700s, but that's what he means. So social justice, all of these things are going to be viewed differently from one side uh, to the other. Uh, including the mechanics or how does society work and uh, and the results of it, then time and its ancillary phenomena, that is basically history. Your understanding of history, its causes, its direction, its progression, uh, which includes traditions, contracts, and economic speculation, those are going to be radically different. So it's like you have these two people, One committed to the constrained vision or what we would call a more biblical view of man is basically evil, man is basically a sinner. The unconstrained view, man is basically good, he's improvable, perfectible, and so society is perfectible and you can bring in utopia on its own. Those are the two views and those two people are speaking different languages. Sometimes they use the same words but they don't mean the same thing. That's what makes it so difficult. Sowell uses as his historic examples people like Edmund Burke. He said Edmund Burke perhaps best summarized the constrained vision from a political perspective when he spoke of, quote, a radical infirmity in all human contrivances. In other words, human beings have a basic flaw and they're never going to be able to produce perfection. Alexander Hamilton, who was also one of the writers of the Federalist Papers and was one of the uh, founding fathers, unfortunately he was uh, killed in a duel with Aaron Burr, uh, he wrote in the Federalist Papers, "...it is the lot of all human institutions, even those of the most perfect kind, which are the divine institutions We would, I would classify there." have defects as well as excellencies, ill as well as good propensities that results from the imperfection of the institutor, man. Marriage is a perfect institution. I hear libertarians say government is evil. Government is, in and of itself is not evil. But the people who run a government can be evil. The institutions are perfect. They're established by God. It is the people that run them that are our sinners, so you have this guy on one side. This is William Godwin, and William Godwin's uh, dates are 1756 to 1836. So he dies just after the uh, Texas Revolution, just prior to uh, the defeat of Santa Anna at um, at San Jacinto. Those are his dates. So he's 20 years old when the Declaration of Independence is signed. He was an English journalist, a political philosopher, and novelist. He's considered one of the first exponents of utilitarianism and the first modern proponent of anarchism. You know, Antifa is supposedly against uh, uh, anarchy, but they're pro-anarchy, they're anarchists. Um, Godwin is most famous for two books that he published within the space of a year. The first is An Inquiry, concerning political justice. So that's, that's the same thing, different name today, social justice, which was an attack on political institutions. His own aim was the complete overthrow of all existing political, social, and religious institutions. So what's he saying there? We have to get rid of the divine institutions. You know, get rid of all, all, all six of them. Sowell then talks about uh, Godwin this way, says his inquiry concerning political justice, a work as remarkable for its fate as for its contents. An immediate success upon its publication in England in 1793, within a decade it encountered the chilling effect of British hostile reactions to ideas popularly associated with the French Revolution, especially after France became an enemy in war. And and so, see, what happened a lot in the French Revolution is you see this attack on the divine institutions in a lot of ways, and as a result, that led to chaos and anarchy in the French Revolution, and those in America and in Britain uh, reacted very, uh, very harshly against that. Now, in that great bastion of conservative thought known as wikipedia they write concerning godwin believing in the perfectibility of the race see that was at its root is man is perfectible he's not a sinner that there are no innate principles and therefore no original propensity to evil He considered that, quote, "...our virtues and our vices may be traced to the incidents which make the history of our lives, and if these incidents could be divested of every improper tendency, vice would be extirpated from the world. All control of man by man was more or less intolerable, and the day would come when each man doing what seemed right in his own eyes." Have you ever seen that phrase before? doing what seemed right in their own eyes would also be doing what is in fact best for the community because all will be guided by principles of pure reason you see the idealism the perfectionism all of that so that's not what romans that's not what romans says at all and so what we see here is the contrast between the, basically the historic conservative view or the constrained view and the unconstrained view. What's interesting is that, that Godwin married a woman named Mary Wollstonecraft. Now remember, like assimilates to like, okay? Think about this. Who was Mary Wollstonecraft? She was one of the founders of the American feminist movement. See, she holds to an an unconstrained vision. That's inherent to the philosophy that undergirds these things. This is in the early uh, 1800s in America, and you have a whole problem with this kind of perfectionism that begins to develop at that time. It goes into the transcendental movement, uh, goes into several other movements, uh, utopian movements in the early part of the 1800s, and and that has, we're really seeing the, the all of that gone to seed now. Mary Wollstonecraft had a daughter. She died in childbirth. Her daughter was named Mary Wollstonecraft, and her daughter married Percy Bysshe Shelley. And they were on the shore of Lake Geneva one year with... Um, Oh, uh, Lord Byron and several others, and they decide, oh, let's have a writing contest. And so they were all going to go off by themselves and write a write a novel, write a short story. She wrote a little short story called Frankenstein. Now you know the rest of the story. All right, so back to Psalm 83. So we see this this plea to God to intervene and to not keep silent. And the, and he calls upon God to uh, destroy these nations uh, that are trying to destroy Israel. They're, it's a spiritual warfare. They're attacking God's plan to redeem the world through the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's a confederacy. This is the same kind of thing we see in Psalm 2, 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage, that psalm begins. And the people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his Messiah. See, that's the role of the nations of the earth today. There's no nation other than Israel that has a covenant with God. Not the United States, not Britain, not Italy, not the uh, Arab nations, none of them. Only Israel has a covenant with God. And all of these nations eventually are going to turn against God in the tribulation period and set themselves against Yahweh and his Messiah. So in Psalm 83, 6 to 8, it outlines these ten nations that have been historically uh, attacked. So that's the foundation, is that God, these nations, these are the ones, you know this, it's written down in Scripture already, they've come against us. And then he uh, appeals to God to deal with them, uh, and list them. And Midian is listed in verse nine, and that relates to Judges six through eight. And also Oreb and Zeb, and Zalmuda, discovered are dealt with in uh, chapter eight. And uh, it's all about the land. That's what we learn from verse twelve. It's brought up again in Isaiah ten twenty four to twenty six. And there, what we read is therefore, thus says the Lord God of hopes, uh, of hosts. God of armies. O oh, my people who dwell in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrian. He will strike you with a rod and lift up his staff against you in the manner of Egypt. For yet a very little while, and the indignation will cease, as will my anger in their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will stir up a scourge for him like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb. As his rod was on the sea, so will he lift it up in the manner of Egypt. Two biblical historical examples. Doctrine is built on these historical interventions of God in history. Prayers in the Psalms, and we could go to Acts 4, a number of other prayers in the New Testament, do the same thing. They go back to these prayers and these events in the Old Testament. Isaiah 9 is, is really interesting. I don't have time to go through the background on this, but if we were to look back at Isaiah 8, 7, and 8... Uh, what's happening is that God is strengthening Israel in that chapter. Isaiah 7, Isaiah 7, 14, there's a, the, the, I'll give you a sign to Ahab that there's a virgin who will conceive and give birth, and you'll name him Emmanuel. These are called the Emmanuel section, chapter 7, 8, and 9. And so in chapter 8, there is God giving confidence that the house of David's not going to be attacked and and destroyed, and in fact, he is going to protect them. And in verse 7, uh, he says, Now, therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty. The king of Assyria, in all of his glory, he will go up over all his channels and go over all his banks. He will pass through Judah. So this is the imagery of a flood, and the Assyrian army is going to come like a flood. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck, but not over the head. That's That's when he's outside of Jerusalem. And then what happens? Hezekiah prays the middle of the night, the angel of the Lord comes and kills everyone in the army. Uh, uh, Sennacherib wakes up in the morning. Everybody's dead, and he runs home, and where his family, his uh, sons will assassinate him. But then we come to... So chapter 9 is, is this reminder of how God is going to protect them from all enemies, "...for you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire." That's what happens at the end of the tribulation. And why is this? Because unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given." And the government will be upon his shoulder. That's at the second coming. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. So that brings us then in terms of an end to this part of the introduction to Judges 6. And we'll come back and do an overview of 6 through 9 next next week before we start digging into it specifically. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things to be challenged in the area of knowing history, knowing the history of the Bible, knowing the history of your interventions in history in the Old Testament and in the New, and being challenged to pray more effectively on the basis of these model prayers that we see throughout Scripture. Thank you that you are the God of history and that these things that we witness are not just random events here and there but that these things that we witness in history are the outworking of your plan to teach us about the need to be totally dependent upon you. And we pray these things in Christ's name, amen.